Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I'm chatting with Duff Goldman at his shop, Charm City Cakes. Goldman and his crew take cake decorating to a whole new level. When you and I were kids, like, maybe we got a cake that was, like, cut out in, like, the silhouette of, like, a little truck. Now, parents can come in and be like, I want to get a cement mixer truck. And I want the thing to actually spin. And I want you to fill that thing with jelly beans so that you push a button and it lifts up and jelly beans fall out of it. And you're like, okay, we can do that. Also coming up, we share a recipe for ancho chili salsa roja. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt digs into the science of no-need doughs. And now it's my interview with Sohi Kim, chef and owner of Insa in Brooklyn. Kim's new book is called Korean Home Cooking. Sohi, how are you? I am really well, thank you. Uh, you went to Barnard. I went to Columbia. Oh, you did. And uh, you worked with Dan Barber at Blue Hill. Yes. And you have a Korean barbecue and karaoke restaurant. Mm-hmm. So here's the question everybody has is that if you have a karaoke restaurant or at least a karaoke room, how many people are actually good singers? Like you have to listen to some <laughs> of the stuff, right? So so is this really what? painful most of the time or are there some really good singers coming to the restaurant? There are some fabulous singers, but that was an absolute concern of mine. So we basically said, 
we definitely have to make sure whether there's good singers or bad singers out there that we make it soundproof. So, so there's some great singing back there, but I, you know, I have to tell you, I've heard some pretty, pretty, <laughs> pretty amazing voices out there that are not so nice to hear. <laughs> Amazingly bad voices. Yeah. Yes. So there are places in the world, South Korea being one of them, where the American military obviously has had a great presence and, sure. and things like spam and ice cream have become popular. Uh, so you actually have a recipe for homemade spam, which I've not seen before. <laughs> so, so talk to yes. me about spam because spam, spam in the United States has a different image, shall we say, than maybe spam in other places in the world. Sure. So growing up in Korea, I lived there until at the age of 10. They, there was a lot of influence uh, from the American culture by way of the, the U.S. Marine and Army. And in terms of food and what's on the table for dinner, my mother would get, you know, a couple of cans of Spam and she would uh, slice it up really thin and, um, and sometimes just simply pan fry it in a batter of egg or she would take little dice of Spam um, and put it in, say, kimchi stew. And so it mm. was kind of <laughs> ubiquitous, mm. but it was one taste that I didn't enjoy. And it just didn't quite in my opinion, in my young opinion, didn't fit really well to what a traditional Korean dinner means. Uh, so as a, as, as a grown adult, you know, when I knew the history of, of our small country that is a peninsula, I understood exactly how it all sort of came together. And, you know, fast forward to opening INSA, I'm a trained chef. And you get to a certain age where you take certain things like that's already processed and canned and jarred and made and you and you sort of tackle it on as a challenge, as a professional challenge. Why can't we make a spam that is better than spam? <laughs> well, that, that, that's deeply philosophical of you. <laughs> and also, you know, it's farce basically that you're making and you're steaming in a container. And it actually was much easier than I thought it was going to be without all the additives that I feel like gets in the way. You, you also have in your book this great photograph of teaching you how to cook rice. So how do you cook rice and w what is your basic method with the knuckles in the water? The basic method is that you rinse the rice as you would, you know, whenever you make rice. And then you, you cover the rice with enough water. And so if you put your hand very flat on top of the rice, the water should come right up to your knuckles. Now, if you have really, really giant hands, it will not work. <laughs> but if you have relatively normal hands, it does work. It does work. And also, it sort of relies on also a cooking based on intuition and, um, and just really using your uh, senses to know when something is done, when something is, is done right. Um, soy marinated seven-minute eggs. Uh, talk about that. Yes. So um, that's just a fun way that I used to eat eggs when I was little. I do fess up somewhere in the cookbook that I was a picky eater and that they used to call me the egg monster, Keran Gishin, because I wouldn't eat dinner, lunch, or breakfast unless I had eggs on the table. Mm. <laughs> and... Uh, we went to go visit some family members in the South, and that's how they did it. They, they produced some amazing soy sauce. They made it themselves, and they just hard-boil some eggs, and then they just put it in there to color, and it just gives it that umami. You know, it's just umami packs snack, basically. Um, but I, I thought to do it a soft, soft boil, you know, because that, mm. that yolky tenderness, it just goes so nicely. So banchan are, in essence, a, a series of meze plates. That's right. Meze, small plates, but it is what, it's sort of the leading charge of a Korean dinner table. Uh, banchan, I would, I always like to say that that is sort of the fundamentals of Korean cooking. The home cook, you know, whether it's a mother or dad cooking a meal for the family, you just make a whole bunch of banchan, you know, very much like Sunday, how you would cook for the rest of the meal is very similar to that. You take on these various projects and you have something that is pickled, something that is, say, soy stewed, something that is fresh, like a, you know, watercress namur, uh, something that is stir fried. And they're basically, to call them exactly side dishes is not correct. Because to me, they're sort of center stage. 
And so you would have like a plethora of choices of banchan in the middle of the table. And then you have your individualized small bowl of rice. And then you have your little stew or soup. And then everything else is sort of is up for grabs. So you share the banchan. So it's very much a communal dining experience. And, uh, and I talk about how you could always tell like, you know, if a mother has a favorite child because, you know, that mother would then take various banchan sort of out of that child's reach and put it on their rice, thus showing love and favoritism. <laughs> and also banchan is a way to, to figure out if you're a special guest or not. Like if they put out one or two or three, then, yeah, you know, they like you a little bit. <laughs> but if you put out the works and like 12 plus little, you know, banchans on the table, then no, you're being treated well. So you said favoritism. So with a family with lots of kids, was there favoritism uh, with the kids or you just mean a child versus an adult? I would say favoritism. I mean, if you, you know, mostly I have f- three other siblings, so there's four of us. There's basically three sisters. I'm the third of the girls, and my my youngest brother is a boy. Um, and my grandmother, for sure, would show favoritism. Like if there's whole fish on the table, you know, she would like debone the fish with her chopsticks and put like a big hunk of like meat <laughs> on my brother's plate, and like she'll put a little bit on mine. <laughs> But I still love her. <laughs> there's a little, there's still a little resentment there, though. I mean, there's you know, a, little a little resentment, bit, but... but I dedicate the book to my grandmother. Okay, you know, she's so. she's of her times, and I I excuse it. <laughs> but if you were to come over for dinner, I would make twenty plus banchan for you, Chris. <laughs> I, I'm looking for at least five. Okay? You'll get more. I'll get more. Okay. Yes. So it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure, and thank you for joining us on uh, Mill Street. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. That was Sohee Kim, author of Korean Home Cooking. Mill Street Radio is available anytime, anywhere. It's a podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also the author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am ready to take those questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? I'm Lane Abrams. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Pretty good. How can we help you? Well, the market that we go to often doesn't have the bread that we like. So when it's there on the shelf, we buy it up. And then, for better or for worse, we get home, it goes right into the freezer for safekeeping. Then we need it. We take a loaf out of the freezer, put it into the refrigerator where we use it. But when it comes out, there's often quite a bit of ice crystals inside the bag. Now, I know that that ice comes from the humidity from the bread, but what I wonder is, if I empty the ice out of the bag, the bread ends up kind of dry. But if I leave the ice in the bag, it gets in the fridge, it melts, and it can make the bread soggy. So what's the right thing to do? Before you put the bread in the freezer, take it out of the bag. It came in and double wrap it tightly. That would be my suggestion. Yeah, in plastic wrap and then yeah. maybe even foil. Yeah. How do you eat the bread? Do you just, like, take off chunks or do you slice it? It's sandwich bread. Oh. You know, you might even want to try popping it in the oven just to reheat it a little bit, not to cook it, but just it sort of restores its moisture. Yeah, but if he's making a sandwich... I know. It's not a lot of work. Yeah, that's kind of a bother for making sam- making lunches. Run around the house the ten times, do twelve push-ups, heat up your <laughs> oven, and then make the sandwich. All right, all right. Sarah's getting this, got this that is the look. man who just did caramelized onions for forty-five minutes okay. this weekend. Although I think that's a good thing. I agree with Chris. Wrap it better. Yeah, that's really the problem. Tightly and twice. Yeah, tightly yeah. and twice. Yeah. We're just thinking. Come home from the market. I want to get everything put away. But if that's uh, that'll make a help. difference. That'll make that's a big gonna difference. be the right thing to do. Yeah. Because there is air in that bag in between the loose bag and the bread, and that's where you get all that moisture. So we think that the ice is more coming from the air rather than coming out of the bread? The moisture is coming out of the bread into the bag, into the air, and then it's crystallizing. Yeah. So if you wrap it tightly, you're not going to get as much of that evaporation. Stay in the bread. Yeah, stay in the bread. Okay, we'll try that. And then make your sandwiches on toast. I do the same thing. I do freeze some bread. I have the same thing you do. Because you buy artisanal bread. It only lasts a few days. And I do toast it for a sandwich, and I think the toasting does help. And you made fun of me. No, I just I don't heat the oven up for 20 minutes. I just throw it in the toast. Okay. So I can still make fun of you. Yeah. So double wrap, and you should be fine. 
We'll try that. Okay. All right, Lane. Thanks, Thank Thanks for much. calling. Take care. Thank you. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Gail Kovacs. How can we help you today? My husband is from Germany, and recently we went back to Germany, and we had the experience in a wonderful restaurant um, having Frankfurt green sauce with a schnitzel dish, and we both fell in love with it. And a lot of the herbs that are used, because apparently is at least seven in each one, are things that, number one, I've never heard of, I don't know where to buy. So um, I was hoping you might be able to help me with that. Was this like a salsa verde? It was olive oil or oil with herbs? No, it's actually a fairly creamy sauce. Oh. My wife's grandmother was Austrian, and she used to serve this sauce, uh, and it was based on a bechamel, I believe, actually, flour and butter Ah. cooked and then adding milk. And I asked her if it was a salsa verde, and she was quite indignant that it actually had dairy in it. (laughs) That's the way her, she did it. Was it, was it a hot or cold sauce? I think it was room temperature. You had it on schnitzel. Yes. It could have been a creme fraiche takeoff. But actually, I think the issue we're talking about here are the herbs. Yeah, dill is one of them uh, in the needed. Parsley, chives, pimpernel, borage, chervil, and sorrel. Let me ask you a question. What you liked about the sauce was... What exactly? The creaminess of it or the herb profile? Well, that's interesting because certainly the creaminess of it and the flavor went well with the dish that we were served. We didn't know enough about what was in it to say that, oh, gee, the borage really Really made a difference. Yeah. Are there other herbs that are similar to that that are more generally available if we can't find these? And if we can't find them locally, are they available dry, and could those be somehow substituted? No, they can't use dry. I mean, no, I would no think dry. about herbs in two groups, sort of the base. You know, parsley is a base, basil is a base, mm-hmm. et cetera. And then the sharper, more pungent, aromatic herbs, tarragon, thyme, dill also would be great. I think what's good about the sauce is there's a creaminess to it, but there's a sharpness to it as well. Mm-hmm. So I would just get... Parsley as a base is always a good start, and add two or three other more pungent herbs. I would make it when you can go to a farmer's market or you grow it, but I I wouldn't end up spending $15 on five packages of herbs from the supermarket. Right. For the sorrel, add lemon juice. For your cream, I would use creme fraiche, which you can boil. So you could heat it up, throw in the fresh herbs, maybe saute up some shallots or something first, throw in the creme fraiche, throw in the fresh herbs, add salt and pepper, and you might have something that vaguely comes near to what you enjoyed. Okay. Well, that's really helpful. Thank you so much. (laughs) Okay. And not dried herbs. Dried dried herbs are terrible, except for a few. I think rosemary and thyme are fine, but this is all about fresh herbs. So, All right. Thank you, Gail. Thanks for calling. Okay. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a great kitchen mystery that's waiting to be solved, give us a call, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Hi, it's Kate calling from beautiful Southwest Florida. Hi, Kate, from Southwest Florida. How can we help you today? Well, I'll tell you, we love blueberries at our house, and we also love smoothies. The thing is that when we put blueberries into smoothies, almost immediately the mixture gels, and it's a very unpleasant texture. So I don't know why that happens. It doesn't happen with other fruits, and I also don't know how to fix it. Yeah, that's happened to me with blueberries also. Well, back when I was starting to cook in the 70s, when you were just 10. No, when I was 40, no. I used to make this horrible dessert. I was living on a farm, so I'd pick fresh berries and put them in a blender with some fruit and just whip it up and put that in a glass of some kind. It was okay, except the blueberries did really gel up. They do. As opposed to raspberries yeah. or other things. So I think that's true. They contain a lot of pectin. Are these really ripe blueberries or sort of ripe blueberries? You know, just out of the carton. You don't really have a choice when you go to the supermarket. It's just what it is. Well, I think the less ripe the fruit, the more pectin there is in it, actually. Now we have to get to the solution part of the call. (laughs) Sarah? You know, I've had luck re-pureeing them. So giving it a second shot, you know, after it's set up, throw it back in the blender and do it again. And maybe add a little extra liquid and see what happens. Is this a blueberry smoothie where the only fruit, other than, let's say, banana, is blueberry? Or is this a mix of fruits? 
Oh, we often add bananas, yeah, yogurt. Well, the other thing to do is just mix it with one other fruit and use half as many blueberries. That would solve that problem. Okay, well, because I wondered if I could add acid, maybe some lemon juice or something, although I haven't really tried that. I think acid actually isn't going to stop chilling. I've made it with mm-hmm. buttermilk, which is very acidic, and it still sets up. So uh, I think just blend it some more or use less of it, like Chris just suggested, with more other fruits. But if anything works, would you please let us know, Kathy? Sure. That would be so nice. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I think just I more will. liquid. A little more liquid, but also give it another whirl in the food processor. Okay, I'll do that. Thanks so much, you guys. Yeah, Okay. take care. Bye-bye. This is Most Year Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, my interview with pastry chef and television personality Duff Goldman, right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. Ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook. I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it 
you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Duff Goldman started out as a graffiti artist and also a metal sculptor and then became a baker. In 2002, he opened Charm City Cakes in Baltimore, Maryland. His Food Network show, Ace of Cakes, turned into a 10-season hit. Duff, how are you? I'm doing really good. How about you? Good. Uh, you know, I don't watch a lot of food TV. Um, maybe that's true of a lot of people who do food TV. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but, but your stuff stands out, man. I mean, Pinball Machine Cake, Kung Fu Panda, German Shepherd, Hogwarts, Elvis, uh, a CAT scan machine. I'll have to ask about that later. Uh, a DNA <laughs> strand. Sure. That's pretty cool. Um, so you you started out cooking uh, in Baltimore. You went to the Culinary Institute of America. You worked at the French Laundry. So wh- what is it about cakes rather than savory cooking uh, that clearly appealed to you? Well, I, you know, that's a good question. Um, I was actually, my first sort of art, I was a graffiti artist. Right. And then, you know, I couldn't do that anymore. Because <laughs> someone trouble. caught you doing it, right? Yeah, yeah, a couple times, a couple <laughs> times. So, uh, you know, my mom and my my art teacher kind of got together. You know, they were like, you have to do something that's a little more legal, a little less dangerous. So I, w- I tried a bunch of different stuff, and I eventually found uh, metal sculpting was sort of huh. my thing because it was the thing was it was like it still it was it was still exciting. You know, kind of like kind of like graffiti. You know what I mean? It was still like whoa, this is cool. I could get hurt. I could get burnt. You know, it was like a fun thing to do. So I was doing those two things. And so when I got to culinary school, I took all the color theory that I, that I learned doing graffiti and then all the 3D design that I learned doing metal sculpture. And, you know, it just made sense. Like cakes just made sense. I was just sort of good at them. Let's go back to the graffiti. So Sure, sure. Just because I, I find that interesting. Is that just a function? I don't think it is. Is it just a function of seeing your stuff you know, on a subway car, go by. What's the attraction from a purely artistic point of view? What, what's really cool about being a graffiti artist? Well, I think back then, if I had to sort of like give a reason for it back then, I think that it's the thing about graffiti is it's very competitive. You know, you're, you want your tag to be dope. You want your, your murals to be dope. You want everything to be amazing. So, like, when other graffiti writers see your stuff, like, man, that guy Duff is amazing, right? That, huh. that guy's really good. It's not really rebelling. Like, if you talk to a lot of graffiti artists, it's not about, like, sticking it to the man or doing what you're not supposed to do or anything. Like, that's not why you do it. Um, you know, that really doesn't come into it. It just so happens that the best canvases for getting all over town and all over the city are trains. So how, where would you paint on a train? There's a yard somewhere in the middle of the night. How did you figure that out? Yeah, so there's, there was a yard in uh, Braintree. I grew up on the Cape and Sandwich. So, you know, we'd go up to Braintree, break in, paint trains, hmm. hopefully be able to leave by the same hole in the fence that we made because if you're leaving any other way, that means you're in the back of a cop car. <laughs> and you know because you were in the back of one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes they give you a choice. Like you can either you can either get arrested or this happened one time and I'll never do it again. But uh, you you can empty out all the paint that you have on you onto yourself. What? Like, in, yeah, including like your face and your hair and everything. And you just have to you have to empty out <laughs> all the paint that you have onto yourself and then they'll let you leave. And did you do that? Arrested. You said you did that once? One one time, one time, yeah. But on the, oh, it was the worst. It was the worst. I breathed in so much paint. It was super gross. <laughs> man, I didn't. Gee, that's kind of like the Wild West, man. So you start Charm City Cakes in Baltimore, and then you end up with Ace of Cakes. So is the batter for the cake just a standard yellow cake mix of some kind that you've come up with, or is it a more structural customized cake mix of some kind well it's it's just a recipe but that recipe is not 
made for being structure. It's not made for its firmness or anything like that. It's just made to taste good. So so when you did a CAT scan machine cake, yeah, you could dig in and eat that cake and it would be delicious. What would be the point if it wasn't? <laughs> I want. You know what I, I mean? agree, but I like, just asked. What him. would be the point? Why do it? You know, like why? Like you know, you see a lot of people. They they you know they make like you know they're making things you know quote unquote cakes, but right. it's just styrofoam covered in modeling chocolate, which okay. is super cool, and they're amazing artists. They're really great artists, but it's not a cake. Right. You know, a cake okay. is something you eat. You okay. Gotta eat it. Now there's also like PVC pipe and motors and lasers and stuff. It's all part of it, but you know, at the end of the day, you're supposed to eat that thing. So. Take me through the stages of this. You started with a regular cake when you were young, probably, right? Your family. What, what was the first step away into something more improvisational or something more more creative? Oh, I mean, the, like, it was funny. Like, when I went to culinary school, I wanted to be, like, a hotshot pastry chef in New York City. You know what I mean? Like, I wanted to, like, you know, be banging pans and, you know, really cool restaurants. Cake decorating was not what I wanted to do. Like, and... um like even when we did it in school, you know, the teachers like, dude, you're good at that. You should, you should, you know, pursue it. And I was like, yeah, it's just, I don't, I don't know, it's just not for me, not for me. And then fast forward a little bit, like worked at hotels, I worked at restaurants, I was working all over the country. I moved back to Baltimore so I could be in a band, and um, I got a job as a personal chef. No, you you play bass. Yeah, right? I play bass. So I got I got a job as a personal chef, and then once my band started really getting big enough that we were getting gigs. Um, I quit that job, and then to pay the rent, I started making cakes in my apartment. So I was just selling cakes. Like I built a website. It was I stole a bunch of pictures from other awesome cake decorators, put them on my website, <laughs> and then and then every time somebody would call, they'd be like, "Hey, can I get that that yellow cake with the with the brown stripe on it with the blue flower?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure." And then I'd make it, and then I'd take that picture down that I stole, and I put put up to put the picture of the one that I actually <laughs> made. You know, I wasn't trying to, like, open a cake shop. I was just trying to, like, you know, pay the rent until I became a rock star, you know, which was any day now. Any day now, it's going to happen. <laughs> and it's still any day now, right? <laughs> any day now. <laughs> so how do you go, okay, now we're going to get into cakes again. So how do you sure. t- take me through three or four sort of cool things you figured out about making cakes? Like, to make a huge cake, what, what is it you figured out? that took time to figure out? Um, measure the door of the van before you build the cake. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but, like, don't I'm build the boat in your one. garage, right? Yeah. Yes, right, exactly. Um, well, I don't know. There's a couple of things. Like, one, uh, I think, I honestly, I think, like, my, my coolest discovery, I think, was when I figured out how to create hyper-realistic wood grain on mm. fondant. Is this, you talking about the color or the actual grain itself? Just creating wood grain, just creating a wood grain pattern on the outside of a cake. And how do you do that? There's just a way. So, so what you do is, uh, you know, fondant is mostly sugar. Right. And sugar is hygroscopic. It right. sucks up water. And so what you do is you, you make whatever, you know, whatever color wood right. and then take a big, wide, soft paintbrush and you just get it on the cake, just paint it. You go in the same direction, you know, just like if you were painting a house, right. you know, up and down, up and down, you know, paint the fence, right? Same thing, up and down, up and down. You can't uh, go side to side. And then you get the whole cake wet and then you just chill. You just sit there for like 25 seconds. And what happens is the sugar in the fondant starts sucking up the moisture out of the paint. Huh. So what happens is yeah. the, when the, the sugar and the water mix, it becomes kind of syrupy and sticky, right? And you get this like super thin layer of stickiness on the outside of the cake. Mm. Then you hit it again with the paintbrush. And instead of being like a, this like really smooth action because you're painting you know, something wet on top of something dry, you're actually sliding something sticky. And as you're sliding something sticky, depending on how much pressure you're using, so you put like really light pressure, you're going to get a really light wood grain, Hmm. put a little bit more pressure and you're going to get sort of like a thicker looking grain, like more where there would be like a knot. And then so by alternating and just Hmm. you know regulating how hard you're pushing on the brush and how much time you've let the paint set, you can create any kind of wood grain you want. So 
you had the cake, sh- have a cake, the Charm City cakes in Baltimore. So w- were there some sort of strange requests from people coming into the store? Yeah, totally. So, you know, the CAT scan one you were talking about, there's not a lot of photographs of that one because the guy that ordered it, he wanted a patient stuck inside of it. <laughs> right. Which actually, and did you actually do that? Yeah. But like, you know, it's, it was actually easier to do with the body in it because without the body, and we've done one without the body too, uh, there's a hole there. Right. And so, you know, that's difficult to do, creating a hole in a cake. Cake doesn't want to do that. So you got to figure out how to support, you know, a cake that is not baked to be structural, but is baked to be delicious. So do you, is it, are there rules like you're not allowed to use, like, you know, building a building or a foundation, use rebar, right? Can you use the equivalent of rebar in doing a cake or everything has to be edible? Is there a rule about that? No, you have to use things like rebar. I mean, like, you know, you can, like, there are people that are purists out there that'll be like, cakes are supposed to be made out of cake and frosting and that's it. That's all you're allowed to use. And those people make, you know, cool looking cakes. But when you say, listen, there are times when I need PVC pipe or wood or styrofoam or metal or bolts or, you know, um, uh, uh, a housing for a transmission. You know, those are all things that, you know, when people are ordering cakes, they want something super cool. And things that have a motor in it that spins around is super cool. Think about if you were a kid, right? Like when you and I were kids, like maybe we got a cake that was like cut out in like the silhouette of like a little truck. It would be cut out of a sheet cake. It'd be flat and it'd be like happy birthday Duff on the side of it. Now parents can come in and be like, I want to get a cement mixer truck and I want the thing to actually spin. And I want you to fill that thing with jelly beans so that you push a button and it lifts up and jelly beans fall out of it. And you're like, okay, we can do that. You know? Because if I was a kid and I got a dump truck that actually moved and then spilled jelly be beans cool. out the back of it and I got to eat it all, that would be super cool. So uh, last thing is let, let's assume I don't know anything about making cakes uh, and uh-huh. uh, you come over for an hour and you're helping me out. Uh, what are some of the things you tell me about making cakes you've learned that would be helpful? Um, sure. I, th- I think one is have a plan. It's really important to have a plan. You know, you got to write down what you're going to do. Maybe draw a little picture, you know, because most of the time, if you just sit down with a bunch of frosting and cake, you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. Uh, It it just, it looks okay. It looks okay. But when you, when you sit down, you plan it out. I feel like you tend to get more focused results. So is is this an illustration of the, of the decorations? What, What do you mean plan it out? Yeah, yeah. You're just like, okay, I'm going to put these flowers here. I'm going to put this decoration here. I'm going to make it this color. I'm going to put this thing on top of it. You just have an idea of what it's going to look like before you start decorating it. Cakes are food, and food's supposed to be delicious, right? And food's also supposed to be beautiful. But cakes, that is literally half of what you're doing. Is you, you know, you're, it's, it's made to be looked at, you know, more so than food. You know, food, I mean, now people think food is made to be Instagrammed, you know, but like, you know, with cakes, it's like you are really making something that is made to be looked at. And that has to convey some sort of message, something that somebody's trying to say with the cake, either happy wedding or happy birthday or happy anniversary or, yeah, you're out of jail or whatever it is. You know, the cake has to sort of convey that idea of whoever's giving it to somebody to celebrate something. You thought of one message to put on a cake. You said, welcome back. You're on parole. Okay. Um, Yeah, great. Uh, This is like dip your hand in the stream of consciousness. Yeah, that that was floating near the top. Um, Duff, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks. That was pastry chef and television personality Duff Goldman. You know, the most interesting part of Duff's life story is his career as a graffiti artist. He wasn't rebelling, it's just that trains and underpasses presented him with the biggest possible canvases. Duff Goldman did pay the price, however. He was once caught, and the police let him go if he simply poured paint all over himself. He did that once, and that's when he switched to baking. After all, it's legal, and it tastes a lot better, too. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe 
Ancho Chili Salsa Roja. Catherine, how are you? I'm great, Chris. How are you? Good. Uh, I just got back from Oaxaca, and of course, as soon as I go somewhere and come back, I get all excited uh, and want to do a bunch of recipes. The thing I found was they had red sauces, salsas or moles, depending, and they were sort of the foundation of the cuisine. What was most interesting was it wasn't about heat. It was about flavor. Chilies are there for flavor, and these were not that hard to make. So I thought we'd come back and make a red sauce, salsa roja, here and see how hard it would be, and two, to make something that people could actually use at home in a variety of ways. Sure, Chris. So it is very easy, I will tell you that much, and the salsa roja that we're making is also really, really versatile. So we start by taking those ancho chilies and just toasting them up in a skillet. Takes just a couple of minutes. What's an ancho chili? An ancho chili is a dried poblano, and it gets almost like a raisiny sweetness and deep flavor. Just like you talked about, it's not only the heat that we're going for. So... You toast that in a skillet, it's gonna make your kitchen smell amazing. It's gonna bring out all the flavor and aroma in that chili. And then we're also gonna soak it just to soften it up a little bit so that it can incorporate easily into the salsa. So what else is in the sauce? It's very simple, Chris. You have those ancho chilies, some garlic, shallot, tomato, and then we have a little bit of sugar. And there is a little bit of heat, of course, in those poblanos, and the sugar really helps just cut through that. This sounds so simple. Are there any tricks to doing this to get the most flavor? Well, the only trick really is that we throw everything in a blender. So it's very simple. Everything gets nice and smooth, release all the different flavors, and then you're good to go. And this can be used to top meats. You can marinate. You can just dip your chips in it. Catherine, thank you. Ancho chilies, uh, make a red sauce in about 15 minutes, and you can use it in a dozen different ways. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for ancho chili salsa roja at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up next, Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt on the science behind no-need doughs. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits, They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, Sarah Malt and I will be taking more of your calls. Sarah, are you ready? I'm so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Carla Kaler. Where are you calling from? Winneka, Illinois. And how can we help you? I am curious about baking sweet things like cakes, Mm -hmm. quick breads, using olive oil instead of butter. Sure. What kind of properties do I have to consider if I'm going to switch? First of all, there are a lot of Italian recipes that call for oil or olive oil, like there are olive oil cakes or olive oil sort of bun cakes. So that's typical. You don't want to use a highly flavored extra virgin olive oil. From Tuscany. Yeah, you you want like a Pompeii and you want some sort of, you know, regular light olive oil I would Mm -hmm. use that doesn't have a lot of flavor because otherwise it'll be overwhelming. You'll also find that an olive oil cake will be moister. Melted butter in a cake, when the cake cools, hardens and actually gives you a drier texture than olive oil, which will stay liquid at room temperature. So you, you get a better texture. The last thing we've noticed is, as a general rule, use about three quarters as much oil as you would butter. But also, it depends on whether the recipe called for melted butter or cold butter. Yes. Because a lot of times the cold butter is in there because you're going to cream it and get air in it with the sugar. I would only use the olive oil in a recipe that had called for melted butter to begin with. But I'm also curious, are you trying to make healthier desserts? Is that it? Yes. (laughs) I'm trying to save the butter for things that it really matters in and, you know, maybe some everyday muffins, quick breads. Well, think about like carrot cake, right? That uses oil. Uses vegetable oil. It's vegetable, but that's a very moist cake. You'll probably get better results. Actually, this is an interesting call. You'll get better moisture cakes with oil than butter in general. Yes, you You don't get the flavor, but you get moisture cake. Right. My feeling about dessert is make the real McCoy, make it the best it can, and really enjoy it. You know, don't try to make them healthy. Why? (laughs) Thanks, Julia. No. (laughs) Julia Trout just walked into the Uh, Yeah, uh, well, she is my mentor, you know. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, but you do get a moisture product. With oil. Well, depending on what the function was. Assuming it was melted butter. Assuming it was melted butter. I agree with you on that. Yes. There is a good reason not health-related for oil. Right. So there. Okay. You're talking, what, about quick breads or bun cakes or that kind of thing? Yeah. Yes, exactly. And if there are certain flavors, like I noticed sometimes like chocolate banana bread, you know, you can use olive oil because there's so many other flavors that you don't necessarily taste the oil. But not in a butter cookie. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Or sugar cookie. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so use three quarters as much and use a very neutral oil. Don't use a expensive oil. Robust. Yeah. Yeah. Use a light olive oil. Light olive oil. Yeah, All right. Oil. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Carla. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jay. Hi, Jay. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Covington, Louisiana. How can we help you today? Uh, so we bought this house um, about a year and a half ago. And uh, it came with a plant that we weren't quite sure what it was at first. And it's turned out to be a Tabasco pepper plant. Oh. Um, and it's a pretty well-established one. And so it's producing several pounds of small peppers every year now. And so I'm just trying to figure out what all we can do with those because it's a lot. You mean besides making your own hot sauce and going to business and competing with Tabasco? Yeah, Absolutely. Well, what kind of food do you like? Do you like spicy food in general? Yeah, we do. They are, you know, you know, really, really spicy. So that's kind of where we're not quite sure what always to do with them. And they're also really small. You could just throw them in alcohol, like vodka or gin or something. Oh, and, yeah? <laughs> and then you'd end up with a spicy vodka, which you could oh, okay. use in cooking in small amounts. And you could dry oh, them okay. and just turn them into a powder. You, know, you could also throw them in vinegar, for that matter. You could throw them in vinegar and pickle them. You could freeze them. I mean, And then, then do what with them? Then, of course, do what with them, but use them in <laughs> recipes down the road. I'm just saying, you have a harvest, you got to do something with it quick before it all goes bad. Yeah. So yeah, you absolutely. could do the things that Chris just said, plus just throw some in the freezer. Okay. I would 
have cute little pouches and give them all away. Well, yeah. No, no. Yeah, no, <laughs> so, no. Here's your, you make here's friends your, and here's your yeah. Christmas gift. Yeah, also, there you, go. you know, yeah. make this infused vodka or you know your own. I think hot the infused sauce. vodka is kind yeah, of yeah. I like cool that. Idea. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't thought about the vodka. I do some beer brewing. I was going to try something like that. Yeah. I'm not sure how that's going to work out. And then you can just use a little tablespoon of vodka or a teaspoon or something. Yeah. Saute or stir fry. Right. Oh, okay, great. Describe the plant to me. Is it like a typical pepper plant that may be a couple feet high? Is that what it's like? That gets to be about three feet high. Yeah. It's probably four feet in diameter. It's yeah. a pretty plant, too. So is Tabasco sauce all made by the McElhoney family? They yes. still do it all? Yes. That's pretty yes, cool. That's yes. it's, con- it's controlled. It's only done really? on Avery Island. Yeah. Everything else is hot sauce. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fun place to visit. That's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Well, give that a shot. But yeah, that sounds like I'm a good right. I'd love to see a Tabasco plant. Thanks for calling. Jay, yeah. thanks for calling. Sounds good. I yeah. appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. You know, for years I've told home cooks to preheat oil in a pan before adding anything else. Now, the thought is that a hot pan and hot oil is crucial for properly searing and sautéing. Hot oil can also serve a role in preventing sticking. But there are times when a slower, gentler approach is actually best. A cold pan and cold oil are best for delicate, fresh herbs and slowly drawing out flavors from spices. Cold oil is also best for garlic and onion. Slowly heating them gives you more control over the process, avoids burning, and also provides better flavor. And cold oil is not going to make onions oily. Raw onions cannot absorb oil since they are full of water. There's simply no place for that oil to go. For more culinary tips, visit us at 177milkstreet.com. Next up, we'll explore the world of food science with J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Kenji, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. So uh, I'm ready to have my mind blown. Um... (laughs) So what, what's on your mind this week? Uh, I, well, this is actually a subject I think you're pretty familiar with it, uh, because you and I worked on this um, back in the uh, 2000s. Um, uh, I think today we'll talk about no-knead dough. Always an interesting thing to come back to because it's so useful. Yeah, and that was, now refresh remember, that was Mark Bittman wrote this up in the Times, and it was based on a recipe yes. by Jim Leahy, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Based, based on Jim Leahy's no-knead dough recipe. I, and I think you and I concluded that it's better to knead the dough by hand for about a minute or two uh, because it gives you a more consistent result, right? Uh, it did. I mean, it did for our particular recipes. And for, for people who don't know the concept, um, you, you take your flour, your yeast, uh, your salt, uh, and your water, and you just mix it all together until it forms a sort of homogenous blob. And then you cover the bowl and just let it sit at room temperature overnight. And then the next day, you kind of fold it and shape it into a loaf and bake it, and you don't have to knead it at all. All that work kind of gets done for you, and we can talk about the science of that in a little bit. But it's, it's a very easy way to make high-quality, sort of flavorful bread uh, with minimal work. I think what we found in our particular recipe was that a lot of home cooks had difficulty working with very wet doughs. Right. And these no-knead breads often call for a ton of water, you know, 70% hydration, something like that. So... Part of our parameters was that we wanted to use a slightly lower hydration dough, um, and that meant that we actually had to do a little bit of kneading by hand at the beginning um, just to make sure that the water was really perfectly distributed throughout and you didn't end up with these sort of dry streaks of flour in the finished bread. Yeah, and I think also in terms of baking, you got a more consistent rise with a slight kneading. Uh, if you didn't knead, sometimes it would, be, it would rise unevenly, so it was a more consistent yes. product. I think that was the other reason. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so maybe, maybe we can talk a little about the science of how no-knead dough works, um, and then sort of what cases you'd want to use it in, and maybe even how to adapt existing recipes you have to become a no-knead method, because it works for almost all kinds of breads, um, and even batters. So, so the basic science behind it is that when you're kneading dough, what you're really doing is you're creating gluten, which is the, uh, the network of sort of interconnected protein molecules. So when you add water to your flour, these proteins become activated, and then as you knead it around, it creates sort of an elastic network, like a net. And that's the network that gives bread its structure. So as the bread bakes in the oven, bubbles of water vapor and carbon dioxide let out by the yeast will sort of expand. And then eventually, uh, as those bubbles get thin enough, they, uh, they heat up and they set. And that's what gives bread its sort of you know, bubbly, spongy texture. So the idea with no-knead dough is that rather than um, building these 
gluten networks by hand, you know, by through lots of physical effort, what you can do is you can let the dough rest overnight. And there are enzymes that are sort of naturally present in the flour that break down some of the protein into smaller pieces. At the same time, uh, your yeast is down there and it's producing bubbles of carbon dioxide. Um, and as those bubbles sort of expand and grow, they do essentially all of the action of kneading for you. It's, it's a much slower process, but you end up developing just as much gluten. You end up with a, a ball of dough that is uh, really easy to work with. Um, you know, on, on top of uh, having already been kneaded for you, um, uh, resting overnight also makes it easier to brown the dough. So, so you end up with a more flavorful dough. And what, what's neat is that that method actually, uh, it applies to not just doughs that are leavened with yeast, but it also applies to batters. I worked on a, on a recipe for... Um, Yorkshire pudding, you know, popovers mm-hmm. essentially yeah. A, yeah. a few years ago. And one of the biggest revelations I had there was letting the batter rest overnight. Now, now Yorkshire pudding or popovers, the recipes usually say half an hour or an hour, right? That's the typical amount of right. time. So what happened when you rested it overnight? So it, first of all, it, it, it rises better. Um, it definitely browns better. And it gets just more of a depth of flavor. You know, similar thing happens, I'm sh- and this I'm sure you've tried yourself, um, with uh, cookie batter. So if you let chocolate chip cookie dough rest overnight, um, as the New York Times recommended a, a number of years back, it makes a pretty dramatic difference in how it tastes. Um, you get a sort of more rich, butterscotchy, browned flavor that way than if you just bake it fresh. This wouldn't work, though, with a baking powder or baking soda leavener, would it? Because when they are in contact with liquid, they start to react. So like pancake batter doesn't get better after half an hour, right? Pancake batter does not get better after half an hour. I mean, modern baking powder is double acting. Right. So, you know, it releases gas when you first mix it with water, but then it releases gas again as you heat it. So you can still get some leavening out of there and you can kind of compensate it by just adding extra. But yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't exactly work for most um, baking powder or baking soda recipes. But you know what is delicious is uh, yeasted pancakes and yeasted waffles, which do oh, get yeah, better overnight. Good. If you want to translate an existing recipe to a no-need recipe, what you want to do is just calculate the moisture content in there. So um, that is, you take the weight of the flour in the recipe, and you figure out what percentage of that is the weight of all the liquids that you're adding, whether they be water or juice or eggs or whatever it is. You want to get a, a ratio there. So as long as the ratio of water to flour is at least around 65% or so, you can just mix everything together and let it rest overnight, and it'll, it'll bake up really nicely hmm. the next day. Um, if it's any less than that, then you want to do a little bit of minor kneading just to get rid of all the dry pockets of flour. And then again, just cover it, let it rest. Um, and, you know, it works with it works with essentially anything. It works with enriched doughs like brioche. Um, it, it works with baguette doughs. It works with almost any kind of dough you can think of. As long as the hydration is right, it'll work. So your next book is going to be Lazy Man's Bread. Evidently, we yeah, you know, this it's useful to know these things because you know there there are times when I just get the urge for pizza. You know, and it's like if, if you know I can make my pizza dough in the food processor and it'll come out and be ready in a few hours, well, that's useful. But I also know I can just take those same ingredients, right. mix them up in a bowl by hand, and I'll have pizza the next day. Um, so, it's, you know, it, it lets you sort of manage your time according to your schedule, knowing these different techniques for making dough. One last question. Yeah. So what about letting stuff sit in the refrigerator? This is always at room temperature, this method? So no need requires room temperature because in the refrigerator, the dough becomes too stiff, so the yeast actually won't need it. But what you're talking about is is cold fermenting, right. um, which is something you can do after your dough is already formed. So whether you form it in the stand mixer, the food processor by hand or through a no need method, um, once the dough is formed, you can take it, put it in a Ziploc bag, throw it in the fridge Got it. and it'll uh, it'll continue to improve over the course of about three days or so. Once it, once it starts to get four to five days old, um, usually you'll get sort of these off aromas. It'll smell like booze and it won't rise properly, but it'll improve up to about three days. Most doughs. So fix it and forget it. Throw in the bowl, mix it up, yeah. come back the next day, then you can bake off your bread. Kenji, uh, particularly useful. I'm going to go home and make some pizza <laughs> dough and have it tomorrow. Thank you. All right. That was Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's the chief culinary advisor for Serious Eats and also author of The Food Lab. No Need Bread was introduced in 2006 in a New York Times article by Mark Bittman, who offered a recipe by Jim Leahy. At least, that's what I thought. Well, Wikipedia says it was first described in a 1999 cookbook called No Need to Need by Suzanne Dunaway. Other sources say that No Need Bread had already been known in Italy long before the late 90s. You know, Jasper White, who's the author of New England Cooking, once told me that there's nothing new in the world of food. 
Everything has already been tried somewhere, sometime. Everything old is new again. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, please download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. That way you'll get every episode downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, subscribe to our magazine, watch the new season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We're also on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week. Thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubab Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.